We're in this message series called Foundations, a road trip through the epistle of Paul to the church in Rome. And I've been saying how much I love the book of Romans because it tells us what we believe, why we believe it, and how we live because of the things we believe. And to this point in the book, Paul has proven that justification before God comes only through faith. And he has also revealed the result of justification, peace with God. And as we now come to chapter 6, Paul anticipates the reaction of his readers to something he said near the end of chapter 5. If you look back at chapter 5, verse 20, at the end of the verse, Paul said, Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Now, some of his readers might have said, I hope he's not saying that we can just live any way we want. And perhaps others were saying, I hope he is saying that we can live however we want. Because, hey, if if God loves sinners, then why worry about sin? If God gives grace to sinners, then why not sin more just so that grace may abound more? Well, Paul answers those anticipated questions by saying that as followers of Christ, We are now dead to sin and alive to God. Look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So he he comes out right there. Here's the question. Verse 2, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Certainly not. Or as it says in the New Living Translation, of course not. Or In my translation, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. Notice the word died there in verse 2. And note that that is in the past. The word died is in the past. As a follower of Christ, you and I died to sin in the past. When we trusted Jesus to forgive us and to lead us, to be Lord of our lives, we died to sin. Now also notice the word live there in verse 2. And note that that is in the future. Because From that time forward, we are to live to God. Now, just to do a quick review of a couple of things that we've already learned and just to add something to that, throughout this series, we've been talking about some big words, and we tried to break them down. One of those words is justification. Whenever you and I trusted Jesus to forgive us and to lead us, God gifted us with righteousness, Now, what is that? What is righteousness? Righteousness is a righteous standing before God. It's a right relationship with him. So the moment that happened, the moment that I trusted, the moment that God gifted me in that way, that is justification. So for you as a follower of Christ, that happened in your past. It happened in that moment you trusted Christ, and it was a one-time act. Now, last week, we learned, something, uh, we learned about something called glorification. Now, where justification happened in our past, glorification happened in the future. And glorification will happen after this life is over, when we leave this earth for heaven, when we leave time and step into eternity. When we are glorified, we are going to receive a new body. We're going to see God face to face, and we're going to experience the moral perfection that seems to elude us in this lifetime. So on the one hand, so you have justification that happened in your past, and on the other hand, you have glorification that's going to happen in the future. But what about in between? What about that in-between time? Because that's where we all live, right? 
between justification and glorification. If you're a follower of Christ, you are living in between those two things. Well, in between those two things is what the Bible refers to or, or, or references is sanctification, what we call sanctification. And that's what Paul is writing about in this chapter and in the next two chapters. Now, you won't find the word sanctification in Romans chapter 6, 7, or 8. But in chapter 6, verse 19, which we will get to next time, you do find the word holiness, which can be translated as sanctification. What is that? What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers to make us more like Christ. It's how we grow. It's, it's the growth process. And it's not an act It's not a one-time act like justification. It is a process that takes our whole life and it ends with glorification. And so sanctification is what Paul now begins to explain. In our text this morning, we're going to cover the first 14 verses. We're going to find the noun sin 10 times. And it's always sin, singular, never sins, plural. When Paul talks about sin in chapter 6, he isn't talking about all of the individual acts of sin that we commit. He is talking about the state of sin or the realm of sin. The idea is that we once lived in the realm of sin and we were subject to the realm of sin, but he's saying that for us as followers of Christ, we now have died to that realm. From our perspective, that realm is now dead to us. So Paul is establishing an important principle that when we are born again, our relationship with sin is permanently changed. That's exciting, isn't it? We have died to sin. Before, we were dead in our sins. Now we are dead to sin and alive to God. And so that's our title this morning, Dead to Sin, Alive to God. And our first point, as we continue in verse 3, is that the death of Christ was a death to sin. The death of Christ was a death to sin. Look with me, look at verses 3 and 4. As he continues, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now I want you to notice several key words in these verses and even some verses we, we haven't gotten to yet, but notice the word know in verse 3, the word knowing down in verse 6, and you see the word knowing again in verse 9. You've probably heard the saying, what you don't know won't, won't hurt you. You've probably said that at one point. You've heard that saying, except it's not always true, is it? Because sometimes what you don't know will hurt you. It will come back and bite you, things that will get you. And sometimes as Christians, what you don't know will hinder your spiritual growth and your spiritual development. When you first become a follower of Christ and it, be, it comes to spiritual truths and things that you learn, there's things that you don't know. There's all this stuff that you don't know and you're not even sure that you don't know it yet. And then, as you begin to grow, you start to come to a place where you do know what you don't know. You don't really know much about it yet, but you have this idea that you need to learn more about this, and you need to learn more about that. I remember very early on in my Christian walk, I would hear things from the pastor 
They would say some term, or I hear a Bible teacher on the radio, and they would use a word that I didn't know, or they would refer to some doctrine that I didn't know what that was about. I'd never heard of it. And I started to think, you know, I need to learn what they're talking about. I need to learn what that word means. I need to know what that doctrine is. I need to know who that Old Testament person is and what they were all about. So I went from this place of, I don't know what I don't know, to a place of, I do know what I don't know. And then you start learning, and you start growing. You learn about these things, and you start to fill these things in with knowledge and understanding until you reach a point where now you know what you know. Not that you know everything, but you have this base of knowledge to work from. Now, the implication here is that Paul is dealing with fundamental concepts that every Christian should know. It seems as though he was telling his readers that there are things that you should know, but you don't know. What is it in your life that you should know more about that than you do? Maybe in some part of your life you're seeking guidance from God, or you're not sure what the Bible says about a particular thing, and it would really make a difference in your life right now if you knew what that was, if you had some of that knowledge. What are you going to do to try to understand what God is saying in his word about that particular thing? What is it that you don't know that you should know? Well, let me encourage you with a few things that you can do along those lines. Obviously, reading God's word, reading it for yourself, reading passages. Study God's word. Find study tools to research words or or doctrines. Um, use the study tools that are available. I love Blue Letter Bible online, blueletterbible.org. And you can go and do searches of words and, and find all the scriptures that use that word and do a word study. Um, I think Jeremy and, and the guys were up here Friday. There's a monthly men's study where they're not just doing a book study, they're learning how to study God's word, to, to dig in and, and use those resources. There's a great website uh, that I use on occasion. It's, call, it's called gotquestions.org, gotquestions.org, and you can plug in, uh, plug in sanctification, plug in glorification, these big words that we're using, or any other word that, that you're not sure about, and you'll find these great, short, concise articles that, that talk about these things that you can learn a little bit about. And of course, pray. Pray, Lord, give me insight into this area this direction, this doctrine, whatever it may be. So dig in and seek those things out. But what is it that Paul's readers should have known more about but didn't? The significance of baptism. Now, when the Bible talks about baptism, unless it says otherwise, it's usually talking about water baptism. And as we read the New Testament, when people were baptized, they were baptized by immersion. They were taken all the way under the water and brought back, back out of the water again. And among the things that that symbolized, it was an initiation rite. That's why in the New Testament, when a person becomes a follower of Christ, you see them being baptized as soon as possible. Right after they've, they've given their life to Christ. Hey, I want to be baptized. And they, they were baptized. For those of you who have never been baptized... You will have that opportunity this summer, so make plans for that. Look forward to that. It'll be a great time for you to be baptized and for everyone else to celebrate you being baptized. But not only was it an initiation, 
It was also identification. In the New Testament, the public profession of faith was baptism. And I know today we, we do, there's different things different churches do, you know, the altar call, or you fill out the, the card or something and turn it in that you gave your life to Christ, or we pray and somebody raises their hand. Those are good things, but the New Testament example of a public profession of faith was baptism. It was how you would publicly identify yourself with Jesus Christ. So that gives us a little bit of an idea of what the significance of baptism is. But then there's something beyond that. And Paul talks about it here. He tells us something that's true about us as followers of Christ, something that you may or may not know that is true about you. And that is that when you are baptized and you go under the water and you come up out of the water, it's not just a picture of how Jesus died and was buried and rose again. It is that, yes, but it also speaks to the truth that when Jesus died, you died. And when Jesus was buried, you were buried. And when Jesus rose, you rose. In some way that we can't fully understand, we truly died with him and were buried with him and rose with him. Now, I don't believe Paul meant to say that this happens at our baptism, but at our moment of surrender. When we surrender our life to Christ, we, we step into that. And our baptism then becomes a symbol of that. So baptism is an illustration of a spiritual reality, and it is our new reality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, it says that the Holy Spirit took us and baptized us or placed us into the body of Christ. It says, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. That happened the very moment you surrendered your life to Christ. But then water baptism becomes a symbol of that. If a person had not trusted Christ and had not been baptized into or placed into the body of Christ, then being baptized in water doesn't change that. It wouldn't suddenly make that happen. So it's a powerful symbol, but it's not the substance or the reality itself. And as Paul talks about this, he uses this great phrase in newness of life. That's what we have. We have newness of life. We have this new life in Christ. And Paul's point is that something dramatic and life-changing happened in the life of the believer. You can't die and rise again without it changing your life. The believer has this real, although it's a spiritual, death and resurrection with Jesus. And so we now have this new life in Christ right here and right now. Well, let's continue in verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now he's going to begin to talk about death and specifically about the significance of you and me dying with Jesus. And so let's unpack verse 6. First, notice our old man was crucified with him. Now you might think of that term old man by turning the phrase around to the man of old. 
This refers to the person you and I used to be before we were followers of Christ. It was you and I when we were in Adam. If you think back to last week, in previous weeks, we talked about being Adam, in Adam versus being in Christ. That's who we used to be. It's the life that we lived all the way up until the time we trusted Jesus. That person, your old man, the man of old, that person was crucified with Jesus. And now notice the next thing in verse 6, that the body of sin might be done away with. Now, this part of the verse in particular, it's understood in different ways by different people. And I'm going to try to uh, share my understanding of this verse with you, and hopefully it gives you some helpful ways to think about it. In the Bible, when it speaks about human nature and what we might call anthropology, it describes us as being body, soul, and spirit. Body, soul, and spirit. And I don't typically tell you what the actual Greek word is in in a study when I define words in the Bible, unless it's a word that maybe sounds familiar to you or it's really descriptive. But in this case, it can be very helpful because the word body in verses 6 and also in verse 12, it's the Greek word soma, S-O-M-A. And it refers to the outer or material part of us, our physical body. When it calls it the body of sin, it doesn't mean that the body is sinful. Our physical body is not sinful, it's it's neutral. As we will see later in the study here, the body can be used for good, it can also be used for bad. But it isn't sinful in and of itself. However, it is sometimes, many times, controlled by sin. So that's the word for body, soma. Now soul and spirit refer to the inner immaterial part of us. The word soul in the, in the Greek is psuche, P-S-U-C-H-E. It's where we get our English word psyche, P-S-Y-C-H-E. And then you have the word spirit uh, in the Greek. It's the Greek word pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. So to help you understand these words even more, if you have a plant in your house, that plant is soma. It just has a material thing to it. It has a body. If you have a pet in your house, an animal, they have soma and suke, a body and a soul. But a human being is soma, suke, and pneuma, body, soul, and spirit. Now, before you and I trusted Jesus, before we died with him, it was like this. The soma, the body, was the dominant part of us. Our physical appetites, our fleshly desires were the things that were in control in our lives. Second to that was suke, the soul. And the Bible says that the pneuma, the spiritual part of us before we knew Christ, it was dead. So it was last, it was dead. But what happens after we trust Jesus, what happens after we have died with him, that whole thing gets turned around, upside down, or we might say right side up. Because pneuma, that spiritual part, of us that was dead is now alive and is now the dominant part of us. It's at the top. And second to that, the suke or the soul, and third is soma, the body. Meaning, for us, as followers of Christ, we don't have to be controlled by our bodily appetites and our fleshly desires. So if you didn't understand any of that other stuff, understand that. We don't have to be controlled by that. Now, when we talk about the word soma, for body, there's a related Greek word 
sarks, S-A-R-C-S, which usually is translated flesh. And like soma, it can refer to just to the physical body, but unlike the word soma, it can also refer to our sinful nature. Now, this is the part there's disagreement on, and whether or not we should understand soma that way in this verse, that's part of what people disagree about. But normally, if you find the same word twice in the same context, then you are to understand, understand the word the same way both times. And down in verse 12, that word soma clearly refers to the physical body and not the sin nature. So that adds to thinking of it only as the body. But there are others who see, see that perhaps soma is being used as a synonym for sarks, for the sin nature. Now, let's just say for the sake of argument that there is the idea of sin nature here. Then what does that tell us about the sin nature? It says there that it might be done away with. Now, that doesn't mean it's destroyed, like unfortunately the King James Version says. A better translation is that it might lose its power in our lives, as the New Living Translation says. I think that's truer to the meaning of the original Greek word. So at the very least, the idea that we are no longer dominated by our bodily appetites, and then beyond that is the idea that the sin nature has been robbed of its power. Now you might be thinking, well, if the old man is dead, why do I still feel this pull inside to do these things, to, to do these, follow after these temptations? It doesn't come from your old man. Your old man is dead. That part of you is dead. It comes from what we call the flesh. In other passages, it refers to as the flesh, which is distinct from the old man. Our inner being has desires and impulses and passions that are played out in our mind, will, and emotions, which is the soul. It's at the soul level. So the flesh is what acts out the inner man, the soul, not the body. So all that, and we're moving on. Look at the last part of verse 6 through the end of verse 7. That we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. If you lived in Rome in the first century and you got this letter, you would immediately have this graphic image of slavery in your mind because it was so common in the Roman Empire. And Paul is going to talk much more about that in verse 15, which is a study we'll look at next time. But I love how in verse 7 he talks about how for you and for me, because we died with Jesus, because in some mysterious way we died with him on that cross, we are freed from sin. And one of the interesting things about sin is that it creates the illusion of freedom. When you sin, when we sin, a lot of times we feel free. We feel like we're doing what we want to do, regardless of whether or not it's what God wants us to do. But in reality, it's an illusion. And what it does, it pushes us to seek our freedom from God instead of seeking to find our freedom in God. Big difference. When Paul says that we've been freed from sin, the idea is not that we were free to sin, like some of the readers of verse 1 might have thought, but we are free not to sin. Because before we trust Jesus and experience the spiritual birth and that we're born again and made alive in Christ, before that, we can't not sin. But now, 
because we receive this new nature from God and because the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us, we are free not to sin. In any given situation, we can make the right choice instead of the wrong choice. Now we can actually make a choice. So the death of Christ was a death to sin, but now our second point, the resurrection of Christ was a resurrection to life. Look at verse 8. Reading verses 8 through 10. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now, as Paul focused on death and the significance of us dying with Jesus in the previous verses, he now focuses on resurrection and the significance of us being raised with Jesus. Most people agree that Jesus lived. There are very, very few people around today who deny that there was ever this historical figure by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. There are some, but it's a very small number of people. And most everyone agrees that he died and that he died on a cross. But not everyone believes that he rose from the dead. Most don't. Now, why do we believe it? Of course, if you've been coming to Engage Calvary for any length of time, you've heard me talk about this hundreds of times, that one of the, some of the main reasons, well, first I would point to the empty tomb that the, the fact that Jesus' body was not found in the tomb and no one has ever found his body. A, a second reason would be the appearances of Christ. We have documentation of Jesus appearing for several weeks uh, to his followers. He would appear and then disappear and then reappear. A third reason would be the transformed lives of his followers who were hiding for fear of being arrested and crucified like Jesus, and then suddenly they go out and take his message to the world. All throughout the Roman Empire, all but one of them died a martyr's death. Why would they do that unless they had seen the resurrected Christ after his crucifixion? Certainly there have been people who died for something that was false, but that they thought was true. But how many people are willing to die for something that they know is false. These guys died because they had seen the resurrected Jesus. They knew that this message about him was true. So the empty tomb, the appearances to his disciples, and the transformed lives. And so as we think about Jesus having risen from the dead, think about it like this. If Jesus' death and ours with him takes care of, of sin's penalty, which it does, then Jesus' resurrection and ours, with him, it deals with sin's power. It deals with sin's power. So if you and I, as followers of Christ, are now living in this new reality, how do we make it real in our lives? The new life we are granted isn't given so we can just live for ourselves. We are to live this new life to God. Look at verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, notice the next key word, reckon. Paul is using it in a business sense, like an accounting term, like when we say, I count that person as a friend, or something happens to us that's goodness, and we say, I count myself blessed 
for, for that. That's how this word is being used here. So if the word know in verses six or 3, 6, and 9, if that has to do with the mind, then the word reckon has to do with the heart. To put it another way, what, we've, what we're learning here in verse 11 is that we have to move from simply understanding what we're learning, which was verses 1 through 10. That's where we start understanding those truths, and we move to accepting them as true about us. That's another step. For you to accept as true about yourself that you died when Jesus died, you were buried when Jesus was buried, and you rose when Jesus rose. And Paul looks at this from two different angles, first negatively, then positively. Negatively, he says, I am not, uh, I'm not only to understand these things, but to accept that I am dead to sin. You ever watch those movies where you're watching where, where somebody dies in the movie, but they don't know that they're dead or not? You know, you'll see a character, and the last thing they remember, their, their car's about to crash, and then all of a sudden they're conscious, and, and they're wondering, am I dead? Well, it's kind of like that where we're reading what Paul said. Paul, you're saying I'm dead, but am I really dead? The idea is, yes, we truly died to sin. But positively, I'm not only to understand, but I'm to accept that I am alive to God. And you're saying, wait a minute, well, you're saying that I'm dead, but I'm alive. Yes and yes. Both of those things are true. Dead to sin, alive to God. So we said that it's one thing to understand this reality, but not accept it. But it's another thing to understand it and accept this reality, but not to experience it. This is exactly the place where many Christians are. They are and have been legally set free from their slavery to sin, yet they're unsure of that truth. Well, let's look at the last three verses in our text that give us practical help in living out the freedom that Jesus has granted to us. Verses 12 through 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Where before we focused in on the word know and the word reckon, now I want you to notice the word present. It's used twice there in verse 13. If know has to do with the mind and reckon has to do with the heart, then we could say present has to do with the will. Because we're now talking about going from simply understanding and accepting the truths of, of being dead to sin and alive to God to actually experiencing those things. And again, Paul looks at it from two different ways, negatively and positively. And once again, he starts with the negative. Notice verse 13, the first thing he says, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. The word members which is found twice in verse 13, it refers to the parts of your body, your limbs, your organs, your faculties. And then the word instruments, which is also found twice in verse 13, that word instruments was often used, it was used of tools, which is certainly relevant, but it was especially used 
uh, by the military for weapons, which might be even more relevant for us to understand. Paul is saying that our body parts are like tools. They're like weapons. Now, imagine a situation in which you had a weapon drawn on, drawn on from a bad guy, he had a weapon, or he had a weapon drawn on you, and, and you had your weapon, and you're you're in this stalemate, and, and then he says, "Drop it," and you're like, "No, you drop it," because you knew that they were firing blanks, and you had bullets. There's no way you're going to drop it. There's no way that you're going to obey them if they tell you to hand over your weapon, and yet. In terms of our lives, that's exactly what we do when we sin. When we disobey God, when we allow the parts of our body to be used for sin and disobedience, Satan is firing blanks. But he says, hey, give me your weapon. And how often do we say, okay, and we just hand it over. We hand it over, and now he's got the weapon. That's essentially what we're doing. And Paul says, stop. He says, stop doing that. So for the positive side of it, notice what follows in verse 13. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, the interesting thing is that when it says do not present, that was in the present tense, which means like I implied, he means stop it. Paul was saying to his readers, and ultimately God is saying to us, look, you have this tendency to surrender your body parts as weapons to the enemy, but you have to stop doing that. And now Paul comes on the other side of it, and he says, do present. And that's not in the present tense, but what's called the aorist tense, which means once and for all. He's asking us to make this critical decision, this coming to this crisis point where once and for all we do present our bodies or parts of our bodies, to God. The Bible tells us that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit because as followers of Christ, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 to 20, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So our bodies are not toys to play with, but as suggested by the word instruments, they are tools to build with and weapons to fight with. God has given to you and to me this body and these body parts so that we can present them to him. To present them to him so that he can use them as tools to build his kingdom and he can use them as weapons to fight the good fight. And although the idea here is that we make this once-for-all decision to do this, it certainly doesn't rule out us reflecting on this daily and making that daily commitment to God, expressing words of surrender to him. And a great way to do that is to, as you pray, as you start your day, is to pray from one, one end of your body to the other to pray, just committing to God your mind. Lord, I commit to you my mind, Lord, that, that I might think the thoughts that are pleasing to you. Lord, I commit to you my eyes. I, I pray that, you, that I would look upon the things that you find beautiful. 
Lord, I commit to you my ears that I would listen to truth and I would listen to those things that are uplifting. Lord, I commit to you my mouth that I would say things that are a blessing to other people, that I would speak truth in love. Lord, I, I commit to you my hands that I would do the things that you call me to do, that I would be a help to other people. And Lord, I commit to you my feet that I would go to the places you want me to go today. Just begin your day by presenting yourself to God afresh. That's a powerful thing. It's a, like a full surrender to the Lord each and every morning. Because one of the biggest mistakes that we can make is that we say, that we say the no, but we don't always say the yes. A lot of us have lived our lives that way. In fact, a lot of us have even been taught in the church to live our lives this way, where we, the emphasis is all about do not present, do not present, do not present, but not enough emphasis on do present, do present, do present. A great passage that gives us both sides of this is Galatians chapter 5, where it talks about how we need to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And it gives us a long list of what it calls the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21. And then after that, it gives, us, gives the list of the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23. And for a lot of us, our whole Christian life has become just a matter of avoiding the works of the flesh. Just a matter of do not present. Just a matter of the no. But little or no emphasis on the fruit of the Spirit. On the do present. On saying the yes. And I've discovered in my own life that when I focus, just solely focus on removing sin and stopping doing things, I'm not very successful. But when I focus on replacing it and allowing the Lord to come in those, those places, I'm far more successful. So if there are some things, maybe some areas of sin in your life where you know God wants you to get victory, but if your focus is just exclusively on not doing that, not doing that, and then not doing that, and it's not going very well for you in that area, this might be the reason why. Because instead of just focusing on removal, you have to focus on replacement. The way to remove lust is to replace it with love. You could try to remove greed, or you could replace it with generosity. You could try to remove selfishness, or you can replace it with servanthood. You could try to remove anger, or you could replace it with forgiveness. You could try to remove pride, or you could replace it with humility. So isn't it interesting how the negative focus doesn't really help me with the positive, but the positive does, in fact, help me with the negative? So for you, in your own heart and in your own mind right now, what is the main thing that you're trying to remove from your life? Something that's outside of God's will, something that is sinful according to the scriptures. What is that main thing that you're trying to remove? And then think about what would be the polar opposite of that. What would be the fruit of the Spirit to answer that? And what if instead of just trying to remove that thing, that you focused on replacing it with that polar opposite thing? Well, let's look again at the final words we're looking at this morning. Verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. 
What a great promise. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Say that out loud. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Repeat that to yourself throughout the day. We don't have to. And when it says, for you are not under law but under grace, the idea is that none of this saying no or saying yes, none of this is about human effort. It's about God's grace. We are dead to sin and alive to God because of God's grace, which brings us all full circle back to verse 1. The question was, should we sin that grace may abound? And now he comes all the way back to grace, and he tells us that grace is not an excuse to sin. Grace is an empowerment not to sin. It's the grace of God that enables us to say the no. It's the grace of God that enables us to say the yes. So let's, let's call out to the gracious God to enable us and to empower us in that way. Let's pray together.